Let's have a word of prayer, and we will look in our Bible study. Father, we're thankful for the evening. We're thankful for the time of fellowship around the table, for the things that you are doing in the lives of one another, and the opportunity to catch up on some of those things. And uh, continue to remember uh, those that have uh, recently gone through loss, and continue to remember Maggie, and uh, remember the Kleichman family, and just continue to remember these people and others, and uh, for your peace uh, for them, wherever they might be at this time. Amen. We're in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 tonight. <clears throat> 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, and uh, we're not going to get out of it. To, we're not going to finish it off tonight, but we've got a, a set of verses that I want us to be able to, to get through. We kind of introduced it last week because we took quite a bit of time in 2 Thessalonians 2.13, looking at the significance of that idea that God chose you uh, from a beginning uh, for salvation. And we're going to move into the last part of that and then into uh, the following context there and the significance of that, what, what Paul is, is getting at. All of this, remember, sits on the background of these people in the, back, in the past that have been causing problems to the Thessalonians and for the Thessalonians to learn that many of these people, now this didn't actually end up happening to them immediately, but that, that type of person are the people that don't believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, they don't believe in God, and they are going to come under judgment at, at a time in the future. But in contrast to that, he says in 2.13, but we are obligated or obliged or we ought to thank God always concerning you brothers, ones having been loved, perfect tense, meaning you were loved, the result you remain loved by the Lord because God chose you uh, for a first or from a beginning, excuse me, uh, for salvation. Then we come to this this last part by sanctification of the Spirit and by belief of the truth. So we have these two expressions here of the nature of this salvation that Paul's focusing on. And the first one is sanctification, and the second one is faith faith concerning truth. And sanctification is a great big fancy word that simply is talking about the act of making holy. But then when you talk about holy, most Christians aren't exactly for sure what to make of that term either. But the term holy meant to set something or somebody apart, set it apart from that which is common. So you had things for common use. So a good example of that was in the, the tabernacle or the tent that God had uh, had gave instructions for Moses and had Israel build. They had instruments in there that were like things you would use in your in your house. They had fire pans in which you put coals. Uh, we don't use those today, but you might use them when you're when you're camping. But it wasn't all that many years ago that people actually would have fire pans like that, and in the late in the evening before they go to bed, they would take coals off their fire, put them in there, and they'd stick them into their bed to warm their beds up. Now in our house. Weenie me has electric blanket on my side that my wife's usually nice enough to remember to go turn on a half hour before we go to bed so I don't freeze when I get into the covers. <laughs> Haven't had to do it the last couple nights. Um, but they had fire pans like that. that. So that was a common thing for people to have, but they had fire pans it, at the uh, tabernacle and temple for offering incense to God. Now, the, here's the significant point. And I could draw, give you the illustration out of Scripture. Um, Abraham, Abraham. Aaron had four sons, and he had two, Nadab and Abihu, that took their fire pans, and they went in and offered strange 
fire to God in the temple. So they were doing their regular ritual, but they took fire in there that God did not ask for. Just a second, we got one more person here. Fire that God did not ask for is what they're doing. So they're taking some different fire, fire that was not part of the, the mosaic ritual. And they took that in there and fire came out from God and killed both of these brothers for doing something God did not ask them to do. And they took it upon themselves. And when that happened then, one of the things that said, God, um, God said, their fire pans are holy because they were for the sanctuary, which simply means a holy place. So you can't use them in ordinary use. So you're going to take them and you're going to beat them into something else that you're going to use in the tabernacle. But you're not going to use them as fire pans in there anymore. And the illustration of that is that that thing, that fire pan, that metal and everything they built it with was set apart for use up there so much so that from God's point of view, you're not going to put it back into common use someplace else. You're not going to take it home and use it in your house. You're going to repurpose it. You're actually going to make something else out of it because it was metal. And you're going to use it for another purpose at the tabernacle or the tent. So hopefully it gives you an illustration of what it meant to be holy. It was something set apart from the common. And it's always in scripture, as well as the, they're pretty sure the terms that it's related to outside of Hebrew, that it um, always referred to something holy or set apart to a God. So you never, I've used the illustration of like a husband and wife, you're being set apart when you're, when you're getting married, you take vows, you're setting yourself apart from everybody else. But the Bible doesn't actually use the term that way. That's just an illustration of being set apart. So that's this first idea of sanctification by the Spirit. Now, how are they sanctified by the Spirit? Uh, I want to look at one other passage here that, had, that uses the same uh, terminology and turn to uh, 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1. First Peter chapter 1. And he's talking here in verse 1, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to the chosen exiles, or the chosen immigrants, the chosen travelers, however we want to understand that, are, that are part of this dispersion of Pontius, Cap <coughs> Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, by sanctification of the Spirit, and because of, I would say, an obedience and sprinkling of blood. There's an obedience and sprinkling of blood that's involved in, in what goes on. But it's by sanctification of the Spirit. Same expression that he's using, that Paul's using in 2 Thessalonians 2, Peter uses of how these people came to be God's special people, his special travelers, elect, chosen uh, in this way. And it's because the Spirit set them apart. Now, how did the Spirit set them apart? Let's go over to 1 Corinthians chapter, chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. I think Josh went over this with us on Sunday morning. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. <clears throat> and it says in verse 30, right at the end, towards the end of the chapter there. But from him, verse 30 says, which is referring back to God at the end of verse 29, but from him you are in Christ Jesus. So if you're a believer, God says you are in Christ Jesus. We spent a lot of time talking about that. Uh, you're in Christ. God's counting you to be in Christ. Who has become to us then wisdom from God? In other words, God's going to apply his wisdom to us in Christ. That's what wisdom is. It's how to take what you know and apply it. And he says God does that to us 
And so he's going to say it is both righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. All three of those are things you get in Christ. When you're in Christ, God counts you righteous. When you're in Christ, God says you are set apart. When you're in Christ, God says you have redemption. You, you have this payment that has freed you from your sins. All three of those are things that you have in Christ, as he said at the beginning of verse 30. And we have other verses that tell us the same thing. In fact, if you look back in verse, at the beginning of 1 Corinthians 1, and look back in verse 2, he's going to say this, he's going to use the word sanctified, but as a, um, uh, a verb, participle in this case. It's Paul's writing, he says, to the church of God, the one that is in Corinth, to those that are sanctified or set apart in Christ Jesus. So same thing. So technically he starts this off and he says, we're set apart in Christ Jesus. At the end of the chapter, he says, we're set apart in Christ Jesus. And how does the Holy Spirit, what role does he have in that? Let's go to chapter 12 of 1 Corinthians. Can I, can I ask you a question? Yes, please. So mine, mine reads, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, and then it says, and called to be holy, mm -hmm. which... I guess, how would you just, because the way you just explained sanctification was that idea of being holy or set apart. Um, number one, uh, number one, it's being sanctified is a, is a verb. The next word that's translated called is technically an adjective. You are called ones. And then another adjective, you're saints. And our Bibles translate it like it's a verb and, an, and a noun saying called saints. That's not the way it reads. I disagree with the Greek, with the way some people translate this. Literally, you're called ones and you're saints. Both those things are true here. So he comes around and he's not only are you set apart, but you are then the holy ones. It's like coming back again. And I think this, let's put it this way. I think the significance of that is, what is the character of this Corinthian church? When you read, most of us here are familiar with reading the, the Corinthian, 1 Corinthians. Yeah, this church is loaded with problems. You've got people that are fighting. You've got people that have lawsuits. You've got immorality that's being tolerated in the church. You've got people that are following men. Hey, we're Paul people. No, we're Peter people. You've got people fighting over whether you can eat things offered to idols. You've got people that sit down at the Lordian table to share fellowship, and they don't share fellowship. They're actually, you know, counting themselves to be better than others. People that don't use it. So in the midst of all this, at the outset, he's reminding them, in Christ, you've been set apart. In fact, in Christ, you are called once. You are saints. It's not that you've been set apart. You really are a saint. See, I think it's just like another way of just kind of punching this home from the get-go that regardless of everything else you're going to read in this letter, <laughs> this is true. And in fact, a lot of people have said this. First Corinthians, without Paul making an argument for it, it's probably one of it, in of itself, probably one of the best arguments for eternal security. Because if you want to talk about a group of people that you would think should probably lose their salvation, it would be the Corinthians. But they haven't. Paul assures them, you're still set apart in Christ, even if you're not acting like it. Even if you're not acting like a holy one, you are. Even if you don't, even if you act like the devil's brats, you're still one of God's called ones. Did that answer that well enough? Now we'll go to 1 Corinthians 12. 1 Corinthians 12 and verse 13. 
Verse 13, it says, For also by one Spirit we all were baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free. And then we've all been made to drink one Spirit. That is, we all share in common one Spirit. But that word baptized, it's by one Spirit that we were all baptized. In this baptism, there's no water involved. Nobody's getting dunked in water. They're getting baptized by the Spirit into Christ. So I heard the gospel when I'm five years old. I believe the gospel at five years old. And I got dunked by the Spirit into Christ. I didn't get water baptized until I was in fifth grade. How old are you when you're in fifth grade? 11, I think? About 11? It's like six years later. Six or, Peggy, she heard the gospel and got saved when she's 16. And you didn't get, you got baptized when you're 20, right? So four, four, four to five years later, before she was water baptized like that. So there's no water baptism. The very moment you believe the gospel, in fact, you don't feel this. This is not an experience. In fact, it says right in there, it says you were, bapt you were baptized into one body. It doesn't say you were baptized in water. It says you were baptized into one body. Water baptism does not put you in the body of Christ. If that's the case, then you could be saved and not be in the body until you get water, water baptized. But of course, there are churches then that teach that water baptism is necessary for salvation, contrary to what the Bible says. So this is how the Spirit put you into Christ, and this is, how the, this is how the Holy Spirit has set you apart. Because where's Christ? At the right hand of the Father. And so here, here's the world. When, this, when we believe the gospel, the Spirit essentially takes us and puts us in Christ at his right hand, and he sets us apart from the common, from the world, and sets us apart to himself at his right hand in Christ. This is the way God sees us every day. Even when you're down here hugging the world for all your worth, God still sees you as set apart to him up here in Christ. That's why he appeals to us to live like we're set apart to him, not to hug the world like that. You know, I'm thinking in terms of John saying, stop loving the world in that regard. So, in short then, back there in 2 Thessalonians back there in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. The first part of this is that you were, um, that he chose you unto a salvation by sanctification of the Spirit. So the first thing that, that happens when, you, when, um, when you're saved is that the Holy Spirit takes and puts you into Christ and that sets you apart from the world, from God's point of view. And we could look at other verses that would support that idea that from God's, I, I grew up in the kind of church and this was really true of fundamentalist churches that I grew up in. And I'd be very careful saying this because I don't want to denigrate fundamentalist churches. The whole purpose of the fundamentalist church was to say, there are fundamental truths of the word of God that we will not compromise on at a time when people were compromising on these truths. I'm not going to chase that down anymore. But there were other things that sometimes came along with that, such as now we need to be set apart from the world. So you need to live set apart from the world. And, of course, then what ended up happening, it, a lot of times that involved uh, whatever kind of things that you, in your church, thought you shouldn't do. So, of course, in the kind of church I had, you don't touch alcohol, ever. Don't go to the movies. In fact, you guys may not know this, but Welch, Mr. Welch, that grape, invented Welch's grape juice, do you know why he did that? So that people, he actually did that so people could have communion at church. 
without drinking alcohol. That was actually the intent, the original purpose of developing <clears throat> that whole technique. Because they otherwise they didn't have a way of long-term storing storing a grape juice very well. Okay, so you don't do that. You don't go to dances. My my family kind of tipped that one on its head because my parents did once in a while. Well, they did it at school dances and such because my dad was a school teacher and they danced too. Anyway, but uh, so it was that kind of thing. You don't go to movies. Man, as a kid, man, all my friends would come back and tell me all about these great movies. I couldn't go to movies. Play what? Play couldn't, oh, yeah, couldn't play cards. Dance. Yeah, I mean, just, I don't like, oh, don't dance. you don't dance, you don't chew, you don't go with girls don't that do, yeah. Mix swimming. Mix, mix yeah, swimming, yeah. except they called it mixed bathing. bathing back then, yeah. yeah. That's right. <laughs> so it, it was all kinds of rules. In fact, it's really interesting. Kevin Jeffries, I was listening to him from his uh, Monday night class, and Kevin was saying he actually knew, I don't know if it's a church down there where they are in Florida or back in Okemoji, uh, uh, Oklahoma, where he was from, but he said there was a church there that in their church doctrinal statement, they actually have a list of things that people in the church are not supposed to participate in. That's actually listed in their church's, uh, well, probably not the doctrinal statement, but their church constitution. Wow. Anyway. So another, all of that to say is that there is a point at which we are to live sanctified. But oftentimes we define sanctification in the background I came from by all the things you don't do. <laughs> we don't do this, we don't do this, we don't do this, we don't do this. But then you'd say, well, what do you do then? <laughs> I hear all that you don't do, but what do you do? And the other thing I would just say is that when you go through and you read the New Testament, you're kind of surprised by the perspective that Paul has on some of this stuff. In this way. So the first part of this is sanctification by the Spirit. You are set apart in Christ <clears throat> and uh, yeah that's going to affect the way you live. Um, <clears throat> he doesn't tell us that we can't be engaged in things in the world. Remember Paul says that in 1 Corinthians. They make, make use of the world, just don't use it to the full. Don't make it an end in itself because <laughs> it's all going to burn. <laughs> So just don't, if you always keep that in mind, whatever you engage in, whatever, when you go and buy that new camper, you just always remember in the end, it's all going to burn. So you can enjoy it, but you hold it loosely. You don't make it your be all end all. See, is that a balance between the way the idea of nothing worldly to, okay, just don't make it the be all end all. Second part that he says here in 2 Thessalonians 2.13 is sanctification by the spirit. And the second one, and then belief in truth. And most of your Bibles are going to say belief in the truth. But I, he, he just says belief in truth because there's a, a, a whole lot of truth that's involved in this. And I think by leaving the definite article off, he is indicating here that part of this salvation that he has chosen us for involves you continuing to live by faith. Remember back over in Romans chapter 1, Paul says that, uh, well, let's go look at it. I'm, I need you to see. We need to look at this. I don't want you to take my word for it on this. Where is it? Romans chapter 1 and verse 16. Paul says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is God's power to salvation to everyone believing, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it a righteousness of God or God's kind of righteousness has been revealed from faith into faith, even as it stands written, the righteous one lives from faith. Now, when he says from faith into faith or to faith, he's talking about the fact that the first thing you do 
the very first thing you do is believe the gospel. But then you don't stop there and say, well, I believe the gospel. I'm in the family now. Now I can do whatever I want. Then you go into a life of faith. Now you learn that God's not just made one promise to me, the promise that I can be forgiven and righteous with him if I believe in Christ. But now you say, now he's made a promise that I can live righteously. He's made a promise that I can live to his glory today. He's made a promise that I can actually serve others in love and so on, all these other promises. And so we move from one act of faith into many acts of faith that we're involved in. And so back there in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 in verse 13, he says it's not only sanctification of the Spirit where the Spirit has set us apart to God in Christ, but it's also now belief in truth. Now he doesn't say belief in the truth. The truth would be that there's, well, it's essentially, for an unsaved person, it's that there's only one God, he's the only one that's going to save you. That's it. But once you get saved, it's also, guess what? There's still only one God, and he's the only one that can give you victory for, over your sin nature. And he's the only one that can actually let you manifest godliness in daily life. You can't, you can't manifest godliness by self-discipline. You can manifest maybe a good moral you, but you can't manifest godliness. By your own efforts. So only God can make that possible. And so when he's talking about belief in truth or belief concerning truth here, he's looking at the fact that when you're doing this, you look at God's promises, you consider them to be true, and you direct faith at those promises. And I believe that this is part of the Christian life. This is all going to fall into, this is the opposite, by the way, of what he'd said about the unsaved people back in verse 12, when he says that they may be judged as the ones not believing the truth. There, it's the truth. He doesn't say the truth, but see, those people did not believe. They didn't even, they didn't even believe the truth, let alone other truths. So he's contrasting us to them. This is not for you and I to go around grabbing our lapels going, look at how much better we are. Because the very point of this starts with God. God's the one that loved us, and God's the one that chose us. And it wasn't because I'm better and God wanted me on his team. Okay. So then he goes on, he says in verse 14, to which. Now the word which, just to help you understand all this, the word which is a neuter pronoun in the Greek. And if we go back into verse 13, the word First fruits is a feminine noun. The word salvation is a feminine noun. The word sanctification is a masculine noun. And the word faith is a feminine noun. So we've got three feminines and one masculine. We don't have a singular, singular neuter thing in there. But we've done this in other studies where we demonstrate when you take things and you mix their genders in Greek, you refer to them with a neuter. And the significance of that is, is what he's saying is to which, to which what? To this, God chose you to salvation. God chose you to salvation by sanctification and by faith concerning the Spirit. And he chose you from, well, see, and I keep getting first fruits in there because my Bible has it divided as first fruits and not from a beginning. I keep messing that up. I apologize for that. Um, anyway, but all of that, he's looking back at all of that and he's saying all of this then, to which, to this salvation with everything that's involved in it, sanctification and this exercise of faith or believing, Unto, to which then he called you. Now, that 
back in verse 13, it says he chose us. Here it says he called you through the gospel. Now, the word call, let me give you some statistics on this, whether you want them or not. We're going to get a, just a few. The word call, the verb call, occurs 148 times in the New Testament. The majority of them is, and he was called Mark, and he was called Jesus, and he was called John, and a man called Barnabas, and so on and so forth. So most of them are somebody being called a name in most of those situations. After that, we have then be people being called to a location or to a state. So they were called to come to this place or called to come there. And technically, when you're talking about the call to salvation, isn't that a call to a location or a state? It is. It's calling you into a state of being saved. It's uh, calling you uh, to this in this way. We could spend a whole evening, because believe me, I've got a lot of scriptures and such just on the nature of calling. But I want you to turn your Bibles for just a moment to Romans 8, to a passage most of you are quite familiar with. Probably you all are familiar with this. In reality, I shouldn't say most of you. Maybe. Romans chapter 8. I want to go back to verse 28. I'm not going to, I'm just reading through these. I don't want to get caught up in everything that's being said. But it says, we know that for those that are loving God, he works all things together for good. To those who are called, called according to his purpose. He has a purpose. Because whom he foreknew. We talked about that foreknowledge last week. That word foreknowledge does not mean that he looked down through the annals of time because he's omniscient and saw, I would choose him. So he's going, well, I'm going to choose Tim then because he chose me. It's not the meaning of this term. There is another word, foresee, proida, to see, proidon, I should say. And this is prognosco. This has the idea that he enters into a relationship with us because he makes this decision, this choice for us, and he foreknows us in that way. He's, he's fully acquainted with me, is the idea of it. Um, I, used to, I used to illustrate it when I took German uh, in college. They have the word kennen and wissen. And wissen would be, say, wissen sie wo die Beethovenstrasse is. Do you know where the Beethoven Street is? I, I, I'm familiar with that. But you would never say, wissen sie ben ort. No, you'd say kenancy. Kenancy means, are you familiar with him? Do you know him? Is he, is he like a person you know? There's a difference. Vissen would be very, yeah, well, I know about that guy. I've seen his picture in a magazine or something. That would be Vissen. And that's the same idea of oida. Oida and idon is like, yeah, I've seen that. I've seen that guy before. I don't know him. Gnosko would mean, oh, yeah, I know him, which I always think it's very uh, important that the word gnosko is a word used for the way a man or a husband knows his wife. And he's using, he's using no, I think all of us understand. He's using there in a, uh, um, what's the, it's a euphemism for physical relationship that he's using that gnosko for when he does that. So when we're talking about prognosko in, in this sense, uh, that he foreknew us, it's talking about the fact that from God's point of view, because of what he's doing, he actually has entered into a relationship with us, even before we existed. We looked at that last week, remember, in 1 Peter 1, that it says, Christ was foreknown from the foundation of the world as a lamb slain. He hadn't been slain yet, but the Father fully could relate to him as though that work was already done even before it actually didn't take place. 
Then the book of Romans comes along and tells us, but he did die at a point in time so that he could prove to all the angels he was righteous in, in overlooking the sins of all those people that had gone before. Because he didn't really overlook them. He just hadn't dealt with it in terms that they could all witness. But when Christ died, they all could witness him literally dealing with it. So he foreknew Christ as a lamb slain. So this is a God existing outside of space and time thing. Uh -huh. Yeah. So from his so from his point of view, he sees it as from God's point of view, he sees it as good as done. He still has it still has to be worked out in time, but he sees it as good as done. That's how God sees the end from the beginning. Right. Yeah. Because he sees, well, the, he sees the whole thing. The way I understand this is that at any given moment in time, we, we are only able to experience this one moment in time sure. right now. We can't, we are not sitting in 15 minutes ago. We're not sitting in 15 minutes from the future, in the future. But God is sitting in all moments of all time at all times. In creation and in whatever happens at the end, right now and right here, right now. Right. Which I can't even. I've never heard it like that. I made it up. I just thought that God was able to reckon and know it while sitting in it. Like I never thought, like, who's sitting there? He's omnipresent. He's yeah. omnipresent. Present everywhere, that the all the time. Like a time continuum. And what that does is it allows God then to have a relationship with people or individuals even before they exist. But I made that up. Is that accurate? No, that's accurate. No, that is absolutely accurate. And that, that actually lines up with the book of Isaiah. Because Isaiah says God knows things in his sequence, but he also knows everything just from one point of view, that he just sees it. It's all like, you know, all this time, it's just like this to God. But in this, he also sees that there's something that happens before this, before this, before this. So he knows both. He, he knows this exists, but this is the way he's able to relate to it. He doesn't have to wait for it from his point of view. So I, you know, so I meet Peggy. I was just thinking about this this morning. I was thinking, I met Peggy. Um, she tells us I met her when we were seniors in high school. I just don't remember that event. I'm sorry. Uh, <laughs> But I remember walking into my dorm room. She's sitting on the floor of my dorm room with my roommate and another friend, and they're listening to music for a play they're trying out for at college there. And uh, and I walk in, and I'm thinking, oh, who's this nice gal? Went over and sat at my desk and ignored her and proceeded to do whatever I was doing at my desk. I just remember sitting at the desk. But that's when I met her for the first time, in my mind. <laughs> See? But you know what? We'd been around. We'd, we'd, we'd been in some of the same places multiple times. I'm sure I watched her perform at state speech because I remember being in that room. But I wouldn't go, oh, yeah, yeah, you were that one. I don't remember that, but I was there. See, but if, but if I were God, I wouldn't have to wait for that sequence of events till that moment when I walk into the dorm room and who's that on the floor of my room sitting listening to this music? Wouldn't have to wait for that. See, so God can relate to this even before it actually happens. Now, back in Romans chapter 8, verse 29, I said I wasn't going to get caught up. Oh, this was asked a question, so that's this legitimate. No, that's okay then. That's okay. That's fine. So, so whom he foreknew, 
he also then predestined. And remember the word predestined in the Greek does not mean just defining the end point. It's talking about everything that takes you to get to the end point. So it's all of this. I always, I know this sounds horrible to use it, but I always look at it like a corral or a cattle chute that assures that we get from one location to this other other location. So what? I know, but I just, it's a, that's like calling us cattle. So that's why I always think that's a, yeah, we're sheep. There we go. But that's so he's predestined us to be conformed to the image of the Son. So the whole purpose of what his goal is for us to be conformed to the image of the Son, but everything he's doing in the process in between here is all designed to get us to that point, which is exactly what he's getting at in this context. So that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. The firstborn means he's the heir. So he's the one, he's the stamp on which all of us are imaged after. If you understand that in this regard. Firstborn here, remember, does not mean just that he was the first kind because he's, he actually was not the first man. Adam was the first man. Jesus Christ didn't come, come around until 4,000 years later. He was God, but he wasn't a man until 2,000 years ago from our point of view. So he goes on, the firstborn among many brothers. We're not like Mormons. He, we're not his brother. He's not our brother because he was a man. He became our brother by becoming man, but he's not man by nature. By nature, he's God, but he became a man in time. Verse 30, and whom then he predestined, these he also called. So those that he's made this determination, what we're going to be and has planned all this in between to get us there, then he also has to call you. It's not enough for God just to know you ahead of time. It's not just enough for God to say, this is what I'm going to do and this is how it's going to get done. He has to, in time, call you and say, now it's time for you to come to salvation. Come in. <laughs> time to come in here. So he called, and whom he called, these he then justified. See, when he calls you to salvation, he declares you righteous. When you believe the gospel, because when you call, when he calls you, that's when you believe the gospel. Okay. This is, we went over this last week with the, uh, under the idea of, of his choosing us in 2 Thessalonians. And we looked at the statement that Jesus uses talking to the disciples. He said, you didn't choose me, I chose you. And then he tells that, those, that crowd of people, nobody can come to me unless the Father draws him. And that word draw, we looked at that last week, that word draw doesn't mean that the Father woos us. I told you I had somebody say that the word draw means he woos us. No, it's the word used for Peter and the other the other fishermen throwing nets in and dragging those nets to shore. That's a lot of effort. We don't, don't woo those. That's not the way the word's used. If you just do a simple word study right in the Bible, you can see that. So he calls us at a point in time, and we come. We respond. We respond in that time. And whom he called, these he didn't justify, declares us righteous. And whom he justified, he also glorified. Now that's technically, I think, looking at a future point in time, but that's also something in Christ we're already glorified. We already have this. So this is a place where this word called is put in, and the significance of this is when I, we can go back over to 2 Thessalonians, when I was raised, most of the time, and maybe I didn't listen as well as I should have, so I might have missed this, but most of the time when, when you heard pastors talk about calling, and this would happen a lot when we would go to camp, I didn't go to camp every summer, but I, at least three times growing up, I went to Bible camp. I went and 
grade school once, junior high, and I think maybe twice when I was in high school, I think, maybe. So four times. Or we go to youth rallies. Okay, You guys all know what youth rallies were. We'd get youth from 10 or 15 churches, and they'd all get together, and we'd maybe roller skate for two hours, and then all sit down on the floor, and they'd have some speaker talk to us or something like that. This is youth rallies. And event, inevitably, a lot of these, you'd have somebody get up there going, I think God's calling some of you to the ministry. He's calling some of you to go to the mission field. He's calling some of you. And they always applied calling to a call to ministry. But when you go through and you look at the word call, unless you're talking about calling somebody there a name, most of the time calling is a call to salvation. You only have a couple times that you ever can, can in, imply that the word call was a call into ministry. And yet I've been to um, ordinations for pastors when they, they, one of the questions they will always ask, they'll ask them, so, okay, you can answer all these questions, that's good, but here's, here's a good one. Were you called? Since I never, since I never chose to go through ordination, you know, I never got to answer that question. I think I did have a couple of the men from the church ask me that before we, before we uh, came out here when they were interviewing me on the phone, and I said, "Well, if by calling you mean called to salvation, yes." And they said, well, "You didn't feel called in the ministry." I said, "When the minute I got saved, even though it was when I was a little kid, God gave me the gift of pastor teacher, and in time I came to understand that." I, want, I sought training, and as a result, I want God to use that. By the very fact that he gave me the gift, he intends me to use it, just like he intends everybody else to use their gift. I just took, I remember, dead silence on the other end of the phone. <laughs> it's like, so it's, yeah, so it's like, so yeah, it was called to salvation, which means, yeah, I'm called to ministry, because every believer is called to ministry by virtue of being saved. You don't have to wait for a separate call when you're at some camp meeting or some meeting in some man pulls on your heartstrings. Yes, people are going to hell on the other side of the world in Africa. Won't you give your life to the Lord to go save them? That's a wrong reason to respond. That's a heartstring pull. It is not something where God is saying, hey, this is what I want you to go do. Go do this. You're doing it because, oh, without me though. That's, I think that's a, kind of appealing to a little bit of our arrogance. I don't think those guys were doing that anyway. I should I shouldn't judge their motives, sorry. <laughs> that's what happens. That's what happens when you get preachy, then you start you start saying things you shouldn't say. So. so he says, to this salvation, exactly what we've been saying. And again, that I I gave you the 10-minute the version on calling here. Um, but on verse 14 in 2 Thessalonians 2, if you haven't turned back there, verse 14, to which you were called through our good news, or the good news, the one from us. In other words, nobody can be saved without hearing the good news. You have to hear that Christ died for your sins, that he was buried, that he rose again, and he alone is your means of being righteous with God and forgiven. That's it. You can't, baptism doesn't save you. Being good doesn't save you. Joining a church doesn't save you. Putting money in an offering plate doesn't save you. It's hearing the fact that Christ did it all. That's it. And I still, I, 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 I know you guys all have heard this story way too many times, but I always, because the first time this ever really just, I realized just how important this was, was Joan Woodall. I thought she and Woody were both saved. Well, Woody was, but she wasn't saved when she showed up at church. I didn't know that. And Joan said, 
I could have told you the gospel. I could have told you what it was. She grew up hearing it every Sunday in the Catholic Church. They would recite that. In fact, my mom worked for a gal in Iowa, a woman. And that woman said she could have told you the gospel. She grew up in Lutheran Church. Every Sunday they'd recite it as part of the Apostles' Creed. She knew it. But both of them said the same thing. Nobody had ever told them that they personally had to believe that was about them and God. That it was a difference between being right with God and forgiven versus not. It's not just an automatic thing. It's not just a thing you recite. It's that you personally believe that for your salvation. It's not a historical faith. Yeah, that's right. It is something in an historical fact, but it's personal in that you, yeah, you're, because belief always has a promise attached to it. And the promise is the promise of being forgiven and righteous with God. And I remember Joan, Joan said, I'm just glad you went, you, that you hit the gospel every week. I guess I didn't realize I did it. But she said, I must have because it's stuck in her mind. And where did Joan get saved? <laughs> in the shower. Yeah, she always, she said that. She told everybody, I got saved in the shower. She was showered and she looked up. She goes, you did it. You did pay all for all of this. You did it. And it dawned on her one day. I still remember that. So uh, it's just, it's to me that, and that just reminded me that there are people that have an historical faith, as Leslie's saying, but they don't have a personal faith, personally in Jesus Christ, that he did it all. And I he really says, I get that because that was me for a long time. Historical faith, not personal. Yeah. Yeah. And Joan said that, and I still remember, I probably don't remember enough of, of my mom's boss, but that was the same thing eventually. She said she knew what the gospel was, but she'd never had anybody confront her with the fact that it needed to be personal, not just a, a thing out there. So, to which you were called through our gospel, to the obtaining or the unique possession of glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, we, we kind of hit this previously back in, uh, in, in uh, the end of chapter one here in uh, 2 Thessalonians, but I want to look at a couple of other passages here real quick just to remind us of what he's saying. So we're going to go back to Philippians chapter three, the very end of the chapter. Philippians chapter 3, in verse 20, it says, For our citizenship is in heavens, from which also we are eagerly awaiting a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transfigure our bodies of humiliation. These are humble bodies. They're lowly bodies. They have limits on what we can do. These bodies of humiliation to be conformed to his body of glory. Got that? His purpose is to take this humble body and make it like his body of glory, his body that actually is able to really show who he is. Now, as an example of this, let's go to 1 John chapter 3. 1 John chapter 3. In verse 1. 1 John 3, 1, it says, See what unique sort of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called the children of God. And we are. It's not just that we're called the children of God. We are 
his children. Wherefore, the world doesn't know us because it didn't know him. Beloved, now we are the children of God, and yet it's not yet plainly visible what we will be. In other words, I'm a child of God, but you look at me every day, I don't always look like a child of God. Someday, you're going to look at me and you're going to go, you look at the devil's brat. I shouldn't say that because sometimes the devil's kids look better than us in that way, but you get the point. I don't always look like I'm really manifesting God's character as a child of God. But, he says, we know that whenever he is plainly visible, we will be like him, for we will see him as he is. See, we will be like him. And if you remember the verse back in Romans 8 that we read a little while ago, part of his that purpose of predestinating us, that determining the where we're going to be, but also how we get there, was that we're conformed to the image of his son. So if you go back there to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 14, he called us through the gospel to the obtaining of this glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now we looked at that future tense, when our bodies are going to be changed, when we're going to see Christ as he is. But I would suggest to you that this is also true of who we are in Christ right now. When God looks at me in Christ, he doesn't see me. He sees me in the character of Christ. He sees me as one that has died to the sin nature. He sees me as one that is risen. He sees me as one that's seated at his right hand. He sees me as one that is righteous. He sees me as one that's set apart. He sees me as one that's part of the body. All these things, he sees that about me in the person of his son. And so I get this reputation that the son has sitting at the father's right hand. He is transferring that kind of reputation and character to me in Christ, to all of us, to all believers in Christ, whether we know that or not. I was saved when I was, you know, like I said, five years old. But it wasn't until I was probably 20 that I learned that I was in Christ and what that meant. And I've told you before, maybe people had said something and I just wasn't listening. Or maybe they just didn't talk about it a lot. I don't know how that one way or another. The point was, <laughs> thankfully, God eventually did get it through my thick skull and began to teach me who that was. <laughs> you ever come to something you think it's like you got this new truth that you've learned and you're thinking nobody else knows this and then you start coming across all kinds of people that know this thing and other books people have written on this and people have written whole books on this stuff and you're like wow this stuff's been out there how come I never, didn't know this how come someone wasn't explaining this to me so, I, always, I, always, I always tell you if you, if you want uh, you can go home and look it up on on the computer, you don't have to go out and spend a fortune on this big book, but there was a man by the name of Lewis Berry Chaper, uh, died in 1952, I believe, uh, had been first president of Dallas Theological Seminary, but wrote this eight-volume systematic theology. But in one of those volumes, he wrote, I think it's like 69 Riches of Divine Grace or 77 Riches of Divine Grace or something. If you go home and type that in, Chaper, Riches of Divine Grace, People have lists of this. You can look and find it on the internet. You can download them. And you know what? I can't think of a better Bible study every day for yourself. Pull one of those out. Look at it. Read the scriptures that are associated with that statement. You could go every day. You could go out. This is another great, rich, rich, one of the great riches of God's divine grace. Biggest thing, like I said, you got to read this. Don't just read the book or read the, you know, his two or three lines that he has there. You better read the scripture verses. Anyway. But it all has to do with the fact that we are sharing in this glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's pure grace, isn't it? 
that he would ever share that glory with me. I am not deserving that he should share his glory, his reputation with me. And then that brings us then to verse 15. And I don't want to stop without, hitting, without getting verse 15. So then, brothers, stand firm, stand firm, and hold, and that word hold means it's a firm grasp, keep a firm grasp on the traditions which you were taught either by word or a letter from us. Does that sound familiar, a word or a letter from us? Remember back at the beginning of chapter 2 when he tells them up there in verse 2, do not be quickly shaken from your mind nor be alarmed either by a spirit or by a word or a letter as if from or through us. Now Paul is coming down, he says, in other words, he said, those are people passing off lies, <laughs> saying we said it or we wrote it. But here in verse 15, he says, we did teach you. Sometimes it was verbal and sometimes we wrote you a letter. And he says, you remember that tradition. Now it's, tra it's plural traditions. So there's a number of traditions. But I want to hit, I want to hit, please don't think I'm a broken record when I say this, but I want to hit what I think is, is a key tradition, because the term tradition can have a negative connotation in Scripture, too. There were traditions that were passed down by the fathers that Paul says we let go. Peter says we let go of those things. There's traditions of men. But these are traditions that, are, that come from Scripture. And I want to go to, to John 13. John 13 and verse 34. This is Jesus speaking to his disciples. And he says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I loved you, that you also love one another. And we've been over this many, 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 many times. What did he do to show them the love? What had he done just a few minutes before? He got down and washed their feet. He, the master, got down and did the chore of a menial slave. And I think we were talking about that Sunday afternoon. We were talking about washing feet. And, uh, and uh, Dwight brought that up. You know, that's not something we do. It's not something we relate to. We all put nice socks on. We wash our feet every morning in the shower. Maybe if you're like me, you might take another shower and wash them again later on. And you put them in a nice clean shoe. These are people that walked around. And, and I think it was Stan, Stan Nelson, maybe. He's the one that made that. He says, from what I understand, if you lived in most cities at that time, People didn't have outhouses. They had a pot that would sit up there. They'd use the bathroom. And then they'd just go over to the window and toss it out into the street. And that's out there. And that dries up and it litters the streets. And then people walk through these streets with all this filth and the dirt and the dust and everything that's on there. So this is one of the first things. When you, when you had a guest come into your house, what was the first thing you did? You had your slave, get over here, wash my guest's feet. What does Jesus do? He's the master and he takes off his nice outer robe, sets it aside, puts a towel, gets down and washes their feet. And he says, what I've done, you do. And he wasn't setting up a ritual. He's setting up a principle of serving others in love. With that then, turn to Romans 12. We're not hitting, we're not hitting every one of these. I've been listening. Kevin Jeffries has been on his Sunday Bible studies. He's been doing He's been going through the love lately, and I've really been enjoying listening to some of that stuff on love. Um, 
makes every time I listen to somebody else teach on something, it's like I want to drop whatever I'm working. I want to teach that now. Is I you get so excited about it. But anyway, after he's talking about presenting your body as a living sacrifice in the ministry of gifts, then he makes, brings it down to the key point. This is what it comes down to. Verse nine: Let love be unhypocritical. In other words, don't just tell people you love them. Actually, love them. Really serve them. Use your gift. And he's going to go through all kinds of things that you can do that are demonstrations of love. One of the ones I'm thinking down in verse 15, because I'm thinking about this right now with, um, there's some people that were from where my parents live. Uh, they're not, they don't live there now. And then Maggie, I'm thinking of that. And I'm thinking of Robin's family, thinking of uh, Holland's family. It says in verse 15, you rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. That's actually can be a demonstration of love is sharing in somebody else's grief with them. Be to me, it seems odd because I'm not that kind of person. But then you actually see it happen and you participate in it or somebody participates in it with you and you're like, I'm amazed at, that that is, that there's a little comfort of somebody sharing in my, in my grief with me like that. So there's an example. One example out of so many things that he says here in Romans. Let's go to 1 Corinthians 13. The daily, the little daily Bible studies I put up right now, I'm going through spiritual gifts in it right now in the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And we have these verses, you know, we read, we read these at weddings all the time, you know, down in verse 4, love is patient, love is kind. But all of this is on the background of spiritual <clears throat> gifts. And it goes back to verse 1. It says, if I speak in the tongue of many, because tongues was a gift, but I don't have love. I'm just a noisy make, just a noisy thing. Verse 2, if I have prophecy, know all mysteries, and if I have all knowledge and all faith so that I can even move mountains. So he actually mentions three gifts there, prophecy, the gift of knowledge, and the gift of faith. But I don't have love. I'm nothing. I'm a nobody. If I'm doing it without love. Verse three, if I give away all my possessions. So here's a person with the gift of giving, even to the point that they even give their body over themselves. But I don't have love. There is no benefit. And the whole point is, God gave you, if you're a believer, he gave you a supernatural ability to serve other Christians. And you need to serve that because that's the way the body's designed to work. So figure out what God wants you to do. And the best way to do it, our, our campus pastor, Tom Hammond, used to tell that. Kids all go, how do I know my gift is? How do I know my gift? He goes, just start serving. And eventually you're going to see there's some things God uses you in that you're more adept at than others. And I tell you, I have used the illustration. If you were to meet my Greek professor that I had in seminary, if you would have met him on the street and entered into a conversation with him, he's the last person you ever would have said, you ought to be a Bible teacher. And I remember my first, my first Sunday in seminary, he was the speaker. He was filling in for his brother that weekend who was on vacation because he wasn't one of the pastors, but he was filling in for his brother. And I'm listening to him and going, three years of, pardon me if anybody's offended by this, but three years of this, oh my goodness. But you know what? It didn't take me hardly any time at all to say, you know what? This guy opens the word and he teaches it. And he is not messing around. And I learned so much from them. And of the professors I had in seminary, he's actually the one that became, not that I had to have a favorite, but he's my, he would end up being my favorite and, and 
probably my best friend then in that regard, uh, in terms of, of my professors. And, uh, and it was because God gave him a gift and he used it in love. He laid his life down. I think the only time he didn't lay his life down is if there was a good college football game on, on a Saturday. He would watch those, but that was it. And his TV was, he had a TV in a little corner shelf over at the end of the sofa. And I said, how do you watch it? He says, I put it there so it's not a distraction. <laughs> because he would spend most of his evenings with his clipboard and he would just be going through scriptures after scriptures. He just had pages and pages that he'd fill with handwritten notes, just going through, working through words and things like this. Man. Anyway, <laughs> I just, uh, ministering a gift in love, laying, laying your life down. <laughs> and for what? You know how much he earned? He got paid $800 a semester. No, he didn't. It cost $800 a semester for a student, and that was split between the faculty. And when I was in school, there were four students. So he didn't make hardly any money, and he was laying his life down for us guys. I just look back and I'm going, I am so thankful. I am so thankful for men that laid their life down for me to learn the word better. Galatians chapter 5. We're going to skip over 2 Corinthians. I'm sorry. What? And their wives, yes. Their wives actually made that very, very possible. Absolutely. His wife subbed every single day that she could substitute teach so that they could do this. Galatians 5 and verse 6. For in Christ Jesus, circumcision does not make anything strong nor uncircumcision, but faith that works through love. In other words, faith, you're going to direct faith that promises, but it's not for yourself. It's in love, which means you're doing something for somebody else. So it's faith working for the benefit of other people. You using faith for their benefit. He says that, that's where some strength is. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 2. This is... This is the fast flight through this. Ephesians 4, verse 2. It's talking about that you were called to walk worthy of the calling in verse 1 with all humility of mind, with meekness, with long-suffering, putting up with one another in love. You're not just putting up with one another. Oh, I could put up with you. <sighs> but to put up with you in love, where I really care about you, I really want what's best for you, that, that's the way you put up with people. I put up with people the other way. <laughs> they can't wait to get out of there. They can't wait to get away from me in that situation. Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1, verse 6. And being, uh, no, that's not the worst. We want, we want verse 9. Verse 6, I get distracted. And this then I, I pray or worship in order that your love might even yet increase more and more in full experience knowledge and in all keen discernment. In other words, when you first get saved, you can love other believers. But as you grow and mature, your love becomes fine-tuned. Think of newlyweds. They get love. They love all oh, starstruck and they love and they do things. And then you put in a few years and you get married. And all of a sudden now you realize this is, this is a little better way to love. It's more years, but this is even better. And you, you, it, your love becomes more fine-tuned. Well, the same thing is true as you mature as a believer. Your love becomes more fine-tuned, more careful, more really looking. They don't just need this. They need this. And you can sometimes see what they need. Whereas up here, it's like, I don't know what they need right now, God. I don't know what they need. I just want to help them. 
God says, okay, go in there and see what you can do. That's fine. But as you mature, pretty soon you're going to start seeing their needs more precisely. Keen discernment. Um, hope you don't mind. I'm not done. Colossians chapter 3. <laughs> I just, I really want you to see, I really want you to see how that this permeates. It shouldn't surprise any of you. I don't think any of you are going, wow, I wouldn't have guessed this, that love was in all this. And we're just grabbing a couple state or one statement out of each book. But Colossians 3.14, and on top of all of this, all these things that he's been telling about getting along, he says, on top of all this, add love, which is a bond or the chain of peace. Think of a chain, think of a chain game. You ever seen the movie, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou, you know? And those three guys running through the field trying to get away from the chain game because they're all chained together. But that's exactly the, the Greek terminology he's using there, these people that are bound together by a chain. But it's a chain of love. That's what binds them together. It's not that they're literally stuck with these people. It's love binds them together. Love binds them together. Anyway, that's going to get distracted with something else. First Thessalonians chapter 1. First Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 3. Remembering your work from faith. Wait, what? Verse 3. First Thessalonians 1, 3. Remembering your work from faith labor from love and hope, or pay, excuse me, patience from hope regarding our Lord Jesus Christ before God our Father. It's your labor from love. Remember, love takes the work you're doing from faith and it makes it become a labor, something you'll exhaust yourself for. Turn to chapter 4 here in 1 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse 9. Now concerning brotherly love, you do not have a need that I should write to you. For you yourselves are God taught to love one another. Indeed, you are doing it, my brothers. So he says they are loving. But he says, you are God taught. You don't need me to tell you this. I'm going to remind you, but you don't really need me. God's the one that keeps reminding you to, to be those that love. And if we go back then to 2 Thessalonians 2, as we're kind of tying this together here, he says... So then, my brothers, stand firm and hold fast to traditions. There are plur plurality of traditions, because I think we could also trace down not only love, but we could also trace down the idea of goodness, of doing good to others in the body of Christ. Good and love are absolutely the same. But we could chase that down. And he says, and you were taught these. You were taught these things. One of the first things I think Paul, when we read Paul's letters, I think if you would have been saved within week one of being saved, Paul would have sat you down and he would have said, Brother, I want you to know you at this time are now seated at the Father's right hand because this Christ we just told you about, God has counted you to have died with him and he's counted you to have been buried with him and to be raised and now be seated at his right hand. The reason I say that is because this permeates every one of Paul's letters. Every one of Paul's letters, he's talking to these people about who they are in Christ. It was something they all knew. So it's one of the, think about that. We take years sometimes to get people around to this. And this was something that Paul did. You came through the door. Okay, you're here now. Now let me tell you what it's like to be in the family. It's not like, let me tell you all the stuff you got to do. No, let me tell you who you are because, and this is the reason, because his goal is for you to be motivated to activity when you start to understand who you are in Christ. Rather than getting the cart ahead of the horse by giving you a whole bunch of jobs, Churches do that. I, I, we had a pastor friend years ago that used to say, get them, get them to work. Keep them busy or you'll lose them. That's, that was his mentality. And I was like, but I don't necessarily want them just 
serving, doing anything. I want them to know who they are in Christ so that they're gonna, they actually can do this with a proper attitude in light of who they are in Christ. And he says, you were called to this through our gospel to obtain this glory. And the purpose of this now is that you stand firm. You hold fast to these traditions that you were taught, whether it was through a, through a word or through a letter. In other words, Paul says, you hold firmly to this. Now, now we'll just close with this. We could go through Peter and see this. Peter says this. James says this. Paul does this in other passages. One, in fact, that passage back there, 1 Thessalonians 1.3, says, remember in your work from faith, labor from love, and patience from hope. Why does he say patience from hope? Because it isn't it interesting, when you, end, when you start into a work that God has for you to do, and love takes and turns it into a labor, all of a sudden, there's these impediments, these, all these things that get in the way, all these things that make it hard. It's like, God, I'm doing what you want me to do. Why does it have to be hard? Why can't it be easy? Why does it have to be such a challenge? And why do these people have to make my life so miserable in the process? This was a lot easier until every time I walked out my door, my, names, or my neighbor started calling me uh, Jesus follower and making fun of me and stuff and religious nut and whatever other things, the persecution and such these people were going through. And it's real easy with persecution to excuse ourselves and say, yeah, it's hard right now. I think God will understand if I just kind of check out for a little while. I'll just punch out for a little while. And I'll just, I'm going to go sit over here and have the cabana boy bring me something cool to drink in the shade. And I'll just do that. And that's not what you do. God has things for you to serve. Ronnie. When you were saying that, I was just thinking how... Um, I don't know how long I thought this, but but in my past Christian experience, I uh, figured that um, if I was led or whatever to do something uh, by God, and, and so I'm doing this, and that, oh, everything will just fall into place because this is what God wants me to do. And it took a really long time to learn that concept of uh, just because God is wanting you to do something doesn't mean everything's going to fall into place and be easy, you know, and he's going to pave the way for you to do this. And so you can confuse that with, you know, like, oh, I must be just hitting my head up against a brick wall. But, but the concept of doing these things and having the right attitude, um, and God does want you to do them, whether it's difficult or whether it's easy. So it's just, just a, a concept that, that took me a long time to understand. It doesn't mm -hmm. always have to be easy, and yet you're still going the right direction. Mm -hmm. And I hope, you, I hope you understand as we're looking at this at the end, having called you this salvation to possess all this, the whole purpose of this is, and we could have gone, I, I, the, one of the verses I think about that I had listed there, we didn't go to his First Timothy chapter 1, where he says that part of the charge was is that God wants us to be those that love out of a clean heart. That's what we've been called to. We've been called to be people that love, that we love other believers. Which is important because then that means all the stuff we learn. So we come and sit in a Bible study like this. We can just take on a bunch of knowledge. You could take a ton of notes and write all this stuff down. You get all this knowledge and you become a big fat head up here. I know all this stuff. Let me tell you all I know. But the whole point of learning this is to help you as a believer say, look at 
that God's done. Look at all that God is doing. Look at all that God says about me. And from that, be motivated then to just have this self-sacrificial love for other people that God produces through us. In other words, the, the purpose is, and we kind of talked about this on Sunday, is to be not just be doers or not just be hearers of the word, but to be people that do it. We actually use it. And it's really easy, and I come back to this again because I just don't want to miss this at the point at the end. I think part of the significance of this is he's saying these things here because he's indicating when you're going through hardship, it's really easy. When you're under persecution, it's really easy to just duck and hide and to quit loving others like God wants you to love others. Trust me, when people are going through persecution together, they really need that. Or when people are going through persecution, they really need to know that there's family when they're going through that kind of hardship. And this is, and it's going to, he's going to continue to bring this out. This is going to come out more with some things that he has to say down below. I used one example because it's tradition. I used one example, the tradition of love. But there are other things, like I said, that go along with that, such as goodness, acts of goodness and such. Okay. Went a long time tonight. So you may have any questions or thing to add. And I'll try not to. <sighs> okay. Verse 14 to this. So that's A. So it goes back to. That whole collection of things. Salvation. Sanctification, faith, it refers to that whole group of things. It cannot refer just to one of them because if it referred to salvation, it would have to be a feminine noun, but it doesn't. So it's referring to a collection of things in there. But it looks at it as a whole, that whole because it, it looks at it as a whole thing, this, this what we would call salvation and everything that's involved in that. Does that make sense? What's one of the promises? Or what are the two promises that are really tied up in the gospel? Forgiveness, forgiveness. forgiveness and? Well, not eternal life, righteousness. Eternal life is, is he, Paul never holds eternal life out as, as one of the things that he promises when he shares the gospel. You do get it, though. Both of those are things you get when you're put into Christ. You have forgiveness and righteousness when you're put into Christ, according to Scripture. See, so that's, so when you're called to that, to this, this glory or this reputation of Lord Jesus Christ, it's that, that he's now, he's my righteousness. It's not that I'm righteous, I'm righteous in him. He is my so righteousness. payment of sin is for the whole human race, but forgiveness only comes through faith. That's right. Yeah, it's only sent away. Yeah, the world hasn't been forgiven. Only the believers that are in, only people who are in Christ are forgiven. You're saying that we might share in the glory of Jesus Christ. You're saying that due to the fact that we have been all those things above in verse 13, saved, sanctified, etc. Um, 
being in Christ, you share in that. How would you define that glory? How would you? It's 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 everything that makes him who he is in the realm of it. And it says there, it just, I want to make sure, the glory of, of our Lord Jesus Christ. So it's laying emphasis on his humanity because it's because we don't become like him in deity. We become only, only sharing this. And so in his humanity, he died, was buried and raised. So we're getting to share in that. In his humanity, he was raised and he sat down at the Father's right hand and we are counted to sit at his right hand. He is righteous in his humanity, but God counts us righteous there. His work of dying on the cross is how he paid the penalty. That penalty then is considered to be paid. We have that redemption in Christ. So therefore, God says, since the penalty is paid, because we're in Christ, sin sent away. It's gone. We're forgiven. See, so all these things about him now are counted true of us in him. And ultimately, they will be fully true of us when we see him at the rapture. Then they'll be true of us in every aspect of our being. Right now, they're counted true of us, and we, at times we actually can live that out. But. So would you, would you say, I mean, you've defined glory, I think, a lot of times as like reputation. Mm -hmm. So we're sharing in that reputation. Mm -hmm. Reputation that he's righteous, that he's... That he's the one that died and rose again. That he's righteous, that he is, he has a reputation to sit at the Father's right hand. Remember, when the Spirit convinces of sin, righteousness, and of judgment, of sin because you don't believe me, of righteousness because I go to my Father and you don't see me anymore. How do I get that? I get that by being joined to him. It's the only way that I get that. So we can, in, in short, we can say we share the glory through. You could say position, but through connection with him. Because mm -hmm. mm -hmm. I, I guess I could be or an normalist would say, yeah, okay, well, let's look for some glory, you know, and like make it shiny or whatever. This is just talking about you have this relationship. You're connected mm -hmm. because you're connected. Share that glory. What's the word may? It says might. Yeah. It, might. it says you might what now? Might or may obtain. So might oh, obtain. and actually, it's it's a it's a ending noun there. It's just um, he called you through his glory to the possession, unique possession. It's a it's a it's a noun, not actually a verb. Peripoiesin. So you're called into the unique possession, the special possession of the glory of, of our Lord Jesus Christ. So it's I possess this now. It's something, it's actually one of my things that I possess. I possess this relationship. It's Benson, his relationship with him now. He called me into this. We kind of tell people this, don't we? That, that Christianity isn't a religion. Because a religion is, these are all the things you have to do. Christianity is, God's calling you into a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's where this, so we're actually this possession of his reputation, because we're sharing it. We have this union with him. In Christ up there, we have a union, but the other side of his Leslie is saying eternal life, because he dwells in us down here. That's a whole other level of this union that we have.
So both are true. I'm in him and he's in me. We just looked at this side up here. Okay. Okay. 